All right, welcome back, everybody, to Story, Symbol, Spirit, a podcast on how to make sense of scripture. My name is John McCambridge, and I am joined by Jackie Mitchell. Good to be here. Jackie, Glad I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad that I'm here. Well, I'm always here. You haven't quit the podcast yet. I haven't yet. In, in, in rage. No. <laughs> Sick <laughs> of this. That's probably coming, though. Uh, if, you, <laughs> if you are a listener to this podcast and you have been enjoying it, go ahead and give us a review and a rating on whatever platform you listen to it on. It's always very helpful for us. And if you have any specific comments or questions or concerns that you would like us to uh, answer or talk with you about, then you can always email us at Jackie or John at 514church.com. That's not one email. Jackie at 514 right. or John. Yeah, we don't have a combined. <laughs> Jackie or John at 514 yeah. Church. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we don't, have a, we don't have a high volume of that from the podcast right now for some reason. <laughs> I don't know. Even though we're very international and we have downloads in Cambodia and France. Uh, right. People aren't asking us questions, so we will get back to you, and we'll get back to you quickly. <laughs> yeah, uh, we're really, there's not a big queue, so please ask a question. <laughs> yeah, so this week, now that the flood has subsided, we're going to get into the heart of the Noahic Covenant. We're going to talk a little mm -hmm. bit about a prophecy about the future that is at the end of Genesis chapter 9. And once again, God is going to make promises to Noah, and these promises are going to be really important for the story going forward. So we're going to touch on all of that today. Before we get into that, Jackie, a little bit earlier as we were setting up in our very fancy state-of-the-art podcast studio in the, <laughs> the toddler room at our church, you, I feel like maybe, you know, you've been getting a little bit too much positive feedback about this podcast and your general oh. persona and personality. So I'd like sure. to throw out something controversial. You don't like Marvel movies. Yeah, no. But what, but what, I what used to. Okay. And I think What's they're- What's changed? I think they're bad now. Like I just think the last like six have not been good. Like give me an example of this a This is bad like a one. house divided. My husband makes me go with him and all of our friends to like the midnight premiere of each one. So as we're recording this, like this weekend, I have to go see like- the Guardians, the Galaxy 3. Yeah, your friend group's pretty serious about movies. You went to see Mario on Good Friday. That was so... They make <laughs> me go to these movies that I don't want to see. And I'm like the only one. And then they're like, oh, well, I guess we'll all just go without you. And I get like FOMO. So which one are you going to see this weekend? We're going to see Guardians 3. And oh. I don't... I'm just not thrilled. Did you like Guardians of the Galaxy, the first one? Yeah. Did you like the second one? It was okay. I just feel like it's going downhill. And this is really like people you cannot like to a Marvel fan, which I've got like a family full of them. Yeah. It's actually like you really cannot like it's hard to be like, hey, I don't like that movie. People yeah. get like really like, no, it's a great movie. I think like none of them have been good. So I just kind of been like tagging along. Mm -hmm. I'm not thrilled. So which like you liked it at the beginning though? I liked it at the beginning. Like I think the they're getting a little Marvel bit. Movies. Yeah, I just think they're getting a little too like. Not everything has to be funny. Mm. I feel like there's always a joke. Well, Guardians of the Galaxy. It, that is, is like a funny. Like that, right? That's true. See, every time I bring something up, people are like, "Well, but that's how it's supposed to be." Well, I'm not like a huge Marvel fan. I was just no, wondering. I'm just wondering it. what changed. Fine. I I can't. I I just think they're all cheesy now. And my so husband you, thinks they're great. He's so, not thrilled. So this is, a, this is a good segment on marital conflict. How, oh, do, yeah. how do you broach this subject with your husband who probably is going to love the movie and you're not going to like it? How, right. do, you, how do you, what do you, do you just kind of ignore it and just say like, <laughs> No, oh, we yeah, drive okay. home. Usually what happens is we drive home and I say, that was terrible. I didn't like it. And then he and or like any friends that we have in the car say why it was good to me. And then I say, well, I didn't like it. And then we go home. <laughs> like, that's it. Like, there's no resolution ever. <laughs> it's just kind of put out there and then we all go to bed. <laughs> 
I like that he's not concerned though. Like you're going to keep going. To yeah. CDs he's like, ah, whatever. whatever. <laughs> She'll come to the next one. Whatever. All right. Well, uh, as we get into today's topic, hopefully this is less controversial mm-hmm. than your take on Marvel movies, yeah. the most successful movie franchise of all time. Um, we are going to get into what happens after the flood subsides. So we talked yeah. last week about the, the, the flood waters receding or repenting, right? We say it's the same word as repent. They, they turn around and they go away. They go back to where they came from, the waters. And uh, uh, a dove was sent out from the ship. Mm-hmm. And we talked about what that means in terms of the clean animals and like a dove and the unclean animals, like the raven that went out first. And uh, the, the dove went out when it didn't return. That shows that the waters have completely subsided and the ark has come to rest in what is the mountains of Ararat. Yes. Which we talked about what that means last time. And so if you haven't listened to that and you're interested, go back and go back and check that out. Uh, but God made a very interesting promise to Noah at the end of Genesis chapter mm-hmm. eight when he said that because the human heart is evil, I will never again allow this kind of flood. Yeah. I will never again take all of the breath that's in the nostrils of living beings away in the way that this judgment happened here, despite the fact that the reason that the flood came is because evil is in the hearts of humans at all times. Right. And then God kind of turns around and says, because that's true, I'm never going to do this again. And what we talked about last time is that this is the moment and the purpose of this covenant, which is really the first official covenant that's going to lead into the next covenants. The, the, the foundation of that is that God is choosing humans despite their sin. Right. And the reason that this is important, in my opinion, is because we're going to go through the story of the people of God and the story of how God brings redemption into the world, which is going to go through people the way that he insists on acting in the world is by acting through people and it's going to get messy. Yeah. You know, we're going to see, we're going to see Abraham. We're going to see Isaac. We're going to see Jacob and Jacob's sons. We're going to see Moses and Aaron. We're going to see the people of God wandering in the wilderness. We're going to see the judges. We're going to see the, the, the Kings once they get into the promised land. And these are the people of God, the people that God has selected to, to bring his redemption to the world. And what we're going to see is we're going to see like a, a, a just repetition of folly and sin and idolatry and turning away from God. Yeah, this is not a story where we get to see, you know, God chose Noah and he was righteous. And so some, in some ways we, we tend to think, well, now humanity's doing better, right? Yeah. But pretty soon after this, and we'll get into some of this today. Sin still exists. And that's what God says. And yeah. I'll work through you anyways. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So they're not going to be holy. No. They're not going to be righteous. And you wonder why something like the flood doesn't happen again. Mm-hmm. If humans are bringing death into the world because we're in charge of the world, but we're supposed to rule on God's behalf and we turn away from him, we turn away from life and we bring death into the world through our sin then why doesn't that kind of judgment just keep happening over and over and over again? And the answer is because he's chosen us. Mm. He's decided that it's not going to happen. If left to our own devices, it would continue to happen, right? And so that's a perspective that you have to take into the rest of the Bible. When you see the people of God, the chosen people of God acting unholy, and you see things going not really according to plan, 
and you get confused about why that is. Why is God moving like this? Mm -hmm. I think that the answer to that question is because of the Noahic covenant. He's chosen to move like this. Sure. Through people like this and quite frankly, through people like us. Yeah, that's a good point because we will, you know, as I've done before, get quite upset with the Israelites. And we, we can have the tendency to say, why would they do that? I wouldn't. Right. It's like, well, we wouldn't. We already do. Right, right. So for us to say, God, you should wipe them out. Mm-hmm. what we maybe don't want to hear is, well, we're doing the same things. Exactly. And so we're going to get into uh, here in Genesis 9 at the end, we're going to see in some ways a repeat of the garden rebellion. And so it doesn't take long. No. I mean, it doesn't even take a generation. It happens pretty much right away where this sin and this evil enters into the world. And then you look back at, you know, because God's going to repeat his promises here, but then you look back to Genesis mm-hmm. 8 and the promise that God makes. And you see why he felt the need to make that promise because he knows how this is going to go. And yet he loves us. He wants us. He desires us to be his images despite our sin. And so he's going to work through that sin. Right. And so we're going to, we're going to touch on this as we go through Genesis nine, because if you don't use that lens of this promise, then even the stuff that happens right after they get out of, uh, out of the ark, it's not going to make sense to you. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's going to feel confusing and you're going to wonder why the people of God aren't acting godly. Mm-hmm. And it's because there's evil in our hearts, just like God says. Yeah. And yet he's never going to do this again because he chooses us. He's made that decision to work through us, which is really beautiful. And it's grace. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's not exactly what we tend to think of when we think of a flood which is a judgment from God that, that rids the world of all life. We actually think that's a, that's a little harsh. Yeah. But the reality is that actually uh, it's grace and it's grace because he chooses us anyways, despite our sin. Yeah, absolutely. And that's going to be the story going forward. And most of the messiness that you see, even in this chapter is going to be because of that reality. Yeah. Mm. All right. So let's pick up in Genesis nine. We'll do uh, nine, one through three. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall on all the beasts of the earth and on all the birds in the sky, on every creature that moves along the ground, and on all the fish in the sea. They are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I have given the green plants, I now give you everything. So what's that sound like? Sounds like Genesis 1 and 2. Yeah. So... You know how I feel about Genesis 1. Yeah. Everything, <laughs> everything connects back to Genesis 1. And this is this is not unintentional. Yeah, for sure. Right? Because Genesis 1 was the beginning of creation. And Genesis 9, 1, when the humans get off the boat, Noah and his family, this is new creation. This is creation restarted mm-hmm. after the flood. And so he gives the same command, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Creation is restarting. So the mandate is given back to his images and then something is added. Yeah. What's added to the to the command? Well, it seems like they can eat animals now. Right. Beforehand, so, they were given every plant to eat. Yeah. Right, in Genesis 1. But now he says, I give you everything that lives and moves about for food. Exactly. Interesting. Yeah. So, so in at the end, I think Genesis 1, 29 through 30, he says, every green plant I give to you. And to all the animals, right? The, mm-hmm. All of this provision that I've set up for you, for you to flourish, so that all of that is given to you, but there's nothing that talks about eating or killing animals, right? Mm-hmm. And here, 
he he gives them all of the plants again. Yeah. But he adds on top of that explicitly, he also gives them the 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 animals to mm. eat. He says, uh, everything that lives and moves ab- uh, about will be food for you. Just as I give you the, the green plants, now I give you everything. Yeah. So what does this mean? Um, if you're sort of in the kind of vegetarian camp, unfortunately, this is not a commentary on the morality of eating animals, right? <laughs> so, so sometimes people want this to say that in a perfect world, we would only eat vegetables. We, we wouldn't eat animals, right? Sure. We wouldn't have to kill and eat animals. But really what, what this is saying, I think, is that this is a commentary on death, mm. right? Because the, the world is fundamentally changed. And, and the Bible is a story about life and death. We've talked about this a lot. Life is granted by God and death is brought about because of our sin, his delegated authorities. He's given the power and the ability to rule the world on his behalf. When we turn away from him, we bring death into the world. That was the story of Genesis 3. That was the story of Cain and Abel, right? Mm-hmm. That Cain uh, could have mastered the sin that was crouching at his door, but instead he embraced the sin that leads to death in the most explicit way possible by slaying his brother. And then all of that culminates in the flood, you yeah. know, this, this violence and wickedness of the human heart that you see in the beginning of Genesis 6. And so, and then the flood comes and then he chooses us despite the fact that there's evil in our hearts. Mm -hmm. And so what that means is that death was not in the world before the fall Mm -hmm. and to eat an animal requires death. Yeah. Right. Um, A life must be taken, but sin leads to death and humans are sinful. And so death is now here to stay. And so the fundamental relationship of humans and creation is different now. Yeah. It's changed. And one of the ways that God is going to be able to dwell with his people is through sacrifice. Mm. And we've, we talked about this a few episodes ago, but because of sin, sacrifice is required. It's yeah. a way for humans to commune with God. And so sacrifice is a way to make amends with God. It restores the relationship that's fractured by sin. And it's a way that sinful man can be in the presence of a holy God. Because the holy presence of God is dangerous if you have sin and death attached to you. Absolutely. And so how can that God be in a personal, proximate relationship with beings like us who have sin in our lives and in our hearts um, uh, that leads to death? Yeah. And yet God said, and what we just talked about, was that he chooses to be with us. Yeah. So one of the ways that that is going to, to be able to, to happen is through this ritual of, of sacrifice. The life of an animal is taken yeah. and blood is sprinkled or wiped or smeared on holy places. We'll see this when we get into the temple. And then part of the sacrifice is burned to God, which the, the, the part that's burned and goes up to him is symbolically him eating and then you as the human who's giving the sacrifice eat part of the 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 rest of the sacrifice so what's happening here is amends have been made the relationship has been restored and so you sit and you eat a meal with god yeah well in order for that to happen you have to be able to eat the meat of the animals Mm -hmm. 
And so part of the reason that this command is now given is so that the sacrificial system that they're going to practice here, but that is really going to come into law in the Mosaic covenant, that that sacrificial system can, can come about. Yeah, we've already seen Abel do this and Noah. Mm-hmm. Noah did a Thanksgiving offering, though, so he didn't eat. He didn't Is eat. That yeah, correct? that's correct. Yeah. That's correct. It all the that offering all went up to God. Yeah, yeah. But we've already seen some instances of sacrifice, and now here's God saying, "We're I'm giving you the animals to eat." Right, because you're going to have to participate in yeah. this ritual that heals our relationship over and over and over again. So the question of you know, how does this judgment of God not keep happening? Mm-hmm. The flood, something like that. The answer is because he's chosen for it not to happen. And yet something then has to come from us in order to enter into this relationship and sacrifice is the main element that you're going to see throughout the rest of the Old Testament in terms of how that comes about. And the, the end of sacrifice that covers sin is a meal mm-hmm. that you eat with God. Yeah. So in some ways, the giving of animals to humans is opening the way for the the practice of sacrifice. Yeah, that's a good point. And, you know, the the there's a part of our brain that wants to look at this and wants to say, okay, so God's just okay with death being in the world now? Mm-hmm. And the answer is no, he's not okay with it. But it is in the world because evil is in our hearts. He already said that. But he's he okay with us, us being in the world. And so we're bringing about death right. and he's choosing to work with us anyways. And so what's he going to do through, through death? Yeah. Well, he's actually going to use death itself to bring us to him. The shadow is sacrifice. And then of course the fulfillment is Christ. Yeah. Is God good with his son dying at the hands of sinners? Mm-hmm. Well, in some ways, no, of course not. Because that requires rejection of God in the flesh. That requires torture and violence and the spilling of blood and murder. And that's not okay. And yet, like we talked about last time, uh, when when Jacob, uh, when Joseph is sold into slavery, you know, he, that story culminates with him saying, you wanted it for evil, but God planned yeah. it for good. God's going to work through even the death that's in the world to bring humans back to him. And that the the shadow of that is going to be sacrifice. And so sacrifice, uh, animal sacrifice, is something that we in our modern brains are very uncomfortable with. Mm-hmm. But it is the heart and the soul of Old Testament worship because of this. Yeah. God is holy. We are not. God is the God of life. We bring death through our sin. How can we commune with God if that's true? Well, in the Old Testament, which is a shadow of the sacrifice of Jesus, sacrifice is the answer to that question. And so I think this is why meat is given to humans. Animals are given to humans to mm. eat here as, as Noah restarts creation. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's so interesting um, how if we don't look at the sacrificial system this way, it's easy to throw it out and say that was really dumb or that mm-hmm. was really silly. And what you'll see is like the pagans would sacrifice in order to please God, their gods, so that their gods would give them good things. Right. That was their attempt to appease the gods. But that's not what we're doing here with God. No, you're, the relationship is being restored simply 
so that God can dwell in your midst without you dying by the force of his holiness. Not that he can do something for us in terms of our crops or our fertility or, yeah, And you'll you'll see the prophets play with this when they're going to be like, do you think that God needs your sacrifices? Hmm. Because people are wondering that, you know, they're saying, well, we're going to the temple and we're making the sacrifices. Why aren't we winning these wars? Mm-hmm. Why aren't why why are we oppressed by these other people? As if maybe they're fueling God by their sacrifices. Yeah, yeah. And the temptation that that they're going to run into when they look at the other people groups that are around them and the way that they sacrifice to their gods is they're going to look at the pagans and they're going to see, okay, well they're they're sacrificing to the gods of fertility, so that the crops grow and so that they they multiply and that the, their women can bear children. And and so maybe we're struggling with that right now. Maybe mm-hmm. there's a drought. And so maybe we should sacrifice to those gods because those gods are promising to give them something. Yeah, there's, a, there's always a draw to material things when you talk about like demonic or... Yeah you know, influencer or, um, or, you know, the promises of these, these lesser gods, these demonic fallen angels. Right. But like, that's all they can offer us is what they have dominion over, which is the world and not right. And death. And what, and what we're going to see is they don't even have dominion. Right. Yeah. They, They claim to, but they don't actually have it. Right. And so you end up selling your soul and getting nothing. Right. Right. We, we betray our humanity for nothing. Right. Because we want to chase after those things. And, you know, this is the reason that this is important, I think, for us today is because there's a lot of people who who make those kinds of deals with God. Yeah. It's like, that's I, good. I'll be faithful here. Like for the next three weeks, you know, maybe there's this sin in my life. I'm not, I'm not going to do that, but I kind of expect you to give me this thing if I don't. Mm. And if that doesn't happen, then I'm going to either assume that God's not real or that he doesn't love me or whatever. And I'm going to go back to, to the old thing. And what we have to see is that was never the promise. Yeah. The promise is him. The promise is God, communion with God. Mm-hmm. And the whole point of sacrifice is to eat a meal with God at the end of the day. That is what is promised. And of course, the blessings that flow from a life with God are real and sometimes they're material. And when we go and we take what we think that we want outside of God's will, then we tend to run into what the Bible calls curses. Mm. Right, but it's not like a tit for tat contract thing. This is a covenant. God wants to be with us. Sacrifice in the Old Testament is a means of us coming into relationship with Him, and that is really all that's promised. Mm. And that's the whole point. And that's enough. And so the animals are given to the humans so that they can actually participate in this relationship with with some kind of reciprocity and obedience mm. and intentionality. Right. So why don't we do? Um, let's see, at the end of that verse, yeah. uh, no, the beginning of the next verse, he's going to start talking about blood. Yeah. So it's not just that you can eat the animals. There are certain restrictions. Yeah. Here's some qualifiers coming up. And he's going to talk about the blood of animals. And then he's going to talk about the blood of humans Hmm. and what this means. And so let's read Genesis nine, four through seven. But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each human being too. I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number, multiply on the earth and increase upon it. So I love this this 
part of the Bible because this just kind of seems like random instructions. Yeah. And there's so much theology that's that's baked into this. Mm-hmm. And so I want to unpack this a little bit. The first thing is that when you eat this meat that I've given you, you're not supposed to eat the blood of the animals. Mm-hmm. And we don't really do that. Yeah. When you read this, you're like, yeah, I wouldn't. Right. I wouldn't do that. So. But, you're, but we're going to see in Leviticus, this is really important to God mm. that you not <laughs> drink the blood of the animals or cook the animals in their blood mm. or, you know, all, all of this stuff with blood. And some of that's going to be ritualistic, but but some of that is has, you know, I think deep-seated theology. Um, the, the blood is called the lifeblood because uh, in the Bible, the way that they understand when they look at how animals die, the blood is the life of the animal. Yeah. Because if you bleed too much. You die. Your life goes away. Yeah. Right. And so the way that they're going to sacrifice animals is they're going to slit the animal's throat and the blood's going to drain out. And they're Mm going to watch the life, the lifeblood drain out of the animal. And that blood will be used for cleansing and covering, you know, because sin brings about death and death taints and infects the things that it touches. And so how do you ritualistically clean those spaces where, you know, when you have a temple and God's presence dwells there, but there's death in the midst of the people, how does the space where the the Shekinah glory of God, the mm-hmm. presence of God dwells, how is he going to dwell in those spaces? Well, you take the life of the animal and you cleanse those spaces with that life in order to, you know, for God to, to, to come near. Um, in the pagan cultures that surrounded them in their festivals, they do drink the blood of the animals. Yeah. Because mm. that's the life and the power of those animals. Mm. Right? So you want the power of a bull. What do you do with it? Well, you drink its life. Mm. Right? You, you, you drink its blood. And what God is saying here is that that's not how you guys are going to do this. Mm. Because first of all, those animals don't belong to you. I've given you dominion over them. And you can eat them in the ways that I've prescribed, but the life of that animal is not yours to have. It's mine. Yeah. And so you only have access to it because of me and because that life exists in me. And this relationship between us can be restored with this blood. Mm. Um, What we translate as lifeblood in the Hebrew is actually two words. There's, There's the word life, which is nephesh, and then there's the word blood, which is dom. Mm. And so there's two, those are actually two separate words and we have to figure out how to translate that into English. And so we translate it as lifeblood, which makes sense. Uh, but nephesh, which I'm saying here means life, is usually translated as soul. Mm. So the nephesh okay. is the soul. And so the humans are not to feast on the soul of the animal, mm. right? They're supposed to use the flesh of the animal for a purpose but the blood doesn't belong to them. Just like our lives yeah, don't belong to us. Exactly, exactly. Because everything is God's. Yeah. You know, um, the, uh, th- this all has to do with sacrifice. So we haven't gotten to that part of the story yet. We've seen sacrifice, it hasn't been explained. Yeah. And the laws of sacrifice that govern the people of the Old Testament have not been given yet. And they actually won't be given for a while in detail. Um, but you start to see the foundations of it laid here. Mm-hmm. So never, I mean, unless they're committing apostasy, never will you see in the temple 
the priests doing anything with the blood except draining it and then using it to sprinkle or cleanse certain yeah. spaces. And that really does separate them from, from the pagan cultures around them. Mm. Um, and it helps them to understand the relationship of the world. Absolutely. Right? The soul of that animal is not for you to gain power. Right. The soul, the life, which is represented as blood in that animal is God's. Yeah. And so you can use that blood to fix the relationship between you and God, but that's it. Mm-hmm. Besides that, it's not for you. Even nutritionally speaking, if you think of a, a, a culture like this, the blood could be useful mm. in terms of eating. Blood has nutrients in it, right? They're wanderers in the desert at points in time. They're subsistence farmers at points in time. Uh, to drain the blood in a u- u- utilitarian sense is wasteful. Mm. But they do it this way because not only has God instructed them, he's instructed them for a reason. It shows something about the world. We, we talk about the symbol aspect of our hermeneutic. Blood symbolizes something. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean, like we keep saying, that it's symbolic in the sense that it's not actually true. It's symbolic in the sense that it's deeply true. Yeah. The blood of an animal, the soul of an animal, points to something beyond itself. It points to God. And it points to our relationship and it points to life and it points to death. And so you have to handle it in a very specific way if you are to acknowledge that, that, that fundamental truth. Mm, that's good. Then we get into what seems to be the death penalty. Yeah. Right? We call this capital punishment today. Mm-hmm. Um, Whoever sheds human blood by human shall their blood be shed for in the image of God has God made mankind. Yeah, I will demand an accounting. Mm. Mm. Well, why? Yeah. What, what is what is that about? Why has God all of a sudden given this this command of capital punishment? Well, don't you think um, we have to have a commandment like this? Because it seems like right before the flood, you know, people were killing. Mm. I mean, we saw it right away. And so now here's God saying, hey, don't kill each other because it's a big deal. Exactly. Because in the image of God, man is created. Yeah. Right. So God has given Noah instructions on how to deal with murder. It's crazy. And one of the reasons Mm. he gives Noah this instruction is because he's chosen humans who are sinful. And what we've seen in the story so far is that that sin tends to lead to death, sometimes in the explicit sense of someone taking another's life. Yeah. Cain kills Abel. Then you have Lamech who brags about killing people. Mm -hmm. And then you have the violence that leads to the flood that you see in these mighty men of renown, the Nephilim. And that brings about the judgment of God. And so uh, basically God is saying murder is going to be in the world. Mm -hmm. Homicide is going to happen because humans are sinful. Here's how you deal with it. Mm -hmm. So the question that people want to know from this is, does that mean that God is condoning the death penalty, hmm. which is a good question. And my answer to that question is yes and no. Yeah. Right. This is an instruction on how humans, the images of God are supposed to live in a world where sinful humans bring death upon one another. And so how do you deal with murder? Well, God has to give us that command because he's chosen us and there's sin in our hearts and the sin in our hearts leads us to do this kind mm-hmm. of thing to each other, right? Um, he, he says that this kind of law has to be given because human life is so precious. Mm-hmm. 
you don't just get to kill somebody. You don't get to take the life of an image of God and then go about your day. You don't even get to just take the life of an image of God and then pay a fine. Mm -hmm. It's more serious than that. That life does not belong to you. That is not someone in your image. That is an image of God. It's his life. And so if you take that, there's very, very serious consequences that are, are going to come about. And we feel this today. Yeah, for sure. You know, like if, I mean, not to get too dark, but like if someone killed your husband and the judge was like, well, that was really bad of you, uh, pay, you know, $10,000 and right. you know, go on with your life. You would feel like that's not an accounting. Yeah. Something was taken from you, right? That's, that's your husband, but that is God's child. That's someone that God has elected to exist. And so you don't get to, to do what, what Cain did and go about your life, even though Cain did, right? God showed him grace in that way. Yeah. But you don't get to be like Lamech and just go about your life. Yeah, I think we don't realize how much of what we believe, even you know, as a post kind of Christian culture is from the this biblical idea of the sanctity of life. Right. Because truly, if we were to believe that this is a materialistic world and nothing matters, we really don't have purpose, mm -hmm. you can't really quantify why it's so bad to kill someone, right? No. I mean, maybe you won't do it. That's fine. I'm not saying that we all would, but, you know, why do we believe it's so sacred, you know, human life? Mm -hmm. Why do we believe that? Well, because the Bible says we're images of God and that each life has a purpose, it's a big deal to take yeah. a life of, of another human. And so, you know, we, we are, I mean, we are sinners. Yeah. And so we do this kind of thing. Absolutely. Yeah. And so God has to, if he does indeed choose us, like he said at the end of Genesis 8, then we have to figure out a way to set up society in a way that goes about this. Now, the question of whether governments should, should take this upon themselves is hard to map onto the Bible because for the most parts, governments are not Christian. Yeah. So even though, like, even if certain countries were founded by Christians and the ethic of that, that governmental system is Christian in ways, there's very mm -hmm. few countries that are operating today in an explicitly church sense. Yeah, for sure. And so that makes everything very messy. And it actually makes it to the degree that I'm not actually comfortable saying, I think that governments should do the death penalty or shouldn't do the death yeah. penalty. The point is that for Christians, the taking of a life is so severe that in God's eyes, the only thing that could account for it. For a life. For a life. Is a life. Is a life. Yeah. Um, so, so like we've been talking about, everything is already compromised. Yeah, we talked about this a couple episodes ago when we talked about an eye for an eye. The point isn't that it's even, the point is that there shouldn't have been the taking in the eye, of the eye in the first place, right? Yeah, the eye that was taken yeah. is already a tragedy. Yeah. Right, but there has to be a way to live with order in this world because God has chosen us in our sin, mm. right? This, it's not God's fault that we have to figure out how to deal with murder. Yeah. I mean, it's only his fault in the sense that he doesn't wipe us out and start yeah. over with something new, <laughs> right, right? Right, As long as we are like this, then there's going to be things that are put into place to help us deal with the less than ideal circumstances that we find ourselves in because of sin. Mm. And murder is is the, the worst thing that you can do. Mm. 
because you're taking a life that doesn't belong to you. Yeah. Taking a life of an image of God. And so he, he gives this idea. In, in a sense, this is already tragic. The fact that that is given to humans at all, here's how you deal with murder, that's a tragedy. Yeah. So everything that comes from that is going to be less than, you know, quote unquote, ideal. Absolutely. If you, you know, if someone kills someone and another person is put to death, it's not like, okay, now we're all happy. Right, right, right. Right. Right, because that's it's, not that's not true. Yeah, it, it can be justice, but it doesn't mean that that's the way the world is supposed to be. Yeah, and you see this in all kinds of things. If you take revenge for something, you don't mm -hmm. actually feel better. Yeah. When you get restitution for a wrong that's done to you, you're not actually healed. Yeah. We, we set up society in ways where we try to bring this kind of order into the world so that we can create and build and try to move forward, but it's already less than ideal. It's already a tragedy that it happened. Right. Does God condone the death penalty? It's like, well, I mean, in a way, no, because he doesn't condone the taking of life, but here we are, not him, us, taking others' lives. Yeah. So we have to figure out how to deal with that. You'd be hard-pressed to say that just, you know— showing people grace in the way that we talk yeah. talk about grace, <laughs> that anybody would be okay with that being the way we deal with murder. Oh, you killed someone? Yeah, you know, God loves you. Hope you know, you're forgiven. Right. Um, while that may be true, theologically, look, that's not, how you, that's not how one would run a society. Yeah, absolutely. That's not how we would try to move forward and be images. And so you can see this by the end. So right after God gives this command on what to do when, when murder is committed, he says this, as for you, be fruitful and increase in number, multiply on the earth. Yeah. Well, that's the opposite of murder. Yeah. So really what the instruction of God is, is don't murder each other bring new life yeah. into the world instead. Yeah. Be fruitful. Do the opposite of murder. What does God want for us? Does God want us to do the death penalty? It's like, well, no, he wants us to not kill each other. Well, we just saw the be fruitful and multiply in, you know, the command to Adam and Eve. And it's almost like God's giving this to them again. But because of people like Cain, he's like, and don't kill each other. Right. So, it, yeah. So, so we want to look at these <laughs> kinds of commands and in some ways we want to blame God. Hmm. And the only thing that we get to blame God for, and I do actually think you can blame God for this, is choosing for us to be his images. Yeah, being gracious. Despite our sin. Yeah. Other than that, the fact that there's murder in the world is awful. And mm -hmm. God thinks it's awful and it's not his will. And what he wants us to do is he wants us to bring life, not to destroy life. Mm -hmm. uh, but here we are because of the way we are. And so he, he, he gives us a framework you know, he gives his people, the descendants of Noah, a framework in, in how to deal with this. Mm, yeah. So then how about 9, 8 through 11? Then God said to Noah and to his sons with them, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. So God repeats the promise we saw at the end of Genesis 8, and he officially makes it a covenant, right? He says, I established this covenant with yeah. you. Never again will, I, uh, will all life be destroyed by the waters of a mm -hmm. flood. And I don't want to be like a broken record because we've already talked about this a lot, but we have to understand that if 
Uh, but for that grace of God, but for us choosing him, we would continue to decreate ourselves over and over and over again. If yeah. we're left to our own devices, then we would do the very things that he's telling us not to do. We will take life instead of bringing it. We will taint his creation with sin. We will not steward this world according to his purposes. And something like the flood will have to happen to cleanse the world. Mm. But God wants us so badly that he decided that he will make it work with us even, even though we're sinful. Yeah. And so he promises protection from what we just saw in, in Genesis 6 and 7. Mm. So then how about 9, 12 through 17? And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all the living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all life on earth. So here's the sign of the covenant. Yeah. A rainbow. Hmm. So, so a covenant is a promise and typically the promises that God makes are coupled with some kind of sign or symbol. Um, and so he says that when you see the rainbow in the clouds you know, I'll remember my covenant promise with you. Yeah. And so last week we talked about that word remember, mm-hmm. not that it slips his mind and he forgets, right? but to remember in the Bible when God remembers his, his covenant or he remembers his people, it means that the promises that he makes are coming to fruition, mm. right? Um, and so then he talks about a rainbow. Yeah, it's interesting. The original covenant sign is a rainbow and a rainbow uh, rainbow is a correct translation in the sense that that's what this is talking about okay what you and i know as a rainbow is what he's talking about here being the sign of the covenant but in the bible uh in in the original language in the hebrew that word is just the word for bow Hmm. it's the word keshet like a like a weapon, like a weapon, okay. like a bow and arrow, right? That that you shoot you shoot things with a bow, and so we just think about what just happened and the wickedness of humanity ruined God's world and it provoked His judgment, and now He has promised that despite our sin and the fact that we will do this again and again if He lets us, He will not bring that same judgment upon us, and how does He show us? that he's going to remember this and make good on this promise. Well, he hangs his his bow, hmm. his weapon. A symbolic laying of a weapon down. Yeah, the rainbow in the sky, according to this covenant, is like the war bow of God hmm. that reminds us that he's not going to bring this kind of judgment upon us even if we deserve it. Hmm. So according to the scriptures, this is what a rainbow symbolizes. That's cool. It, it symbolizes the grace of God mm-hmm. and the peace that comes from his grace between us and him. Um, we struggle with this concept because we don't like the implications, but if we're just talking about some kind of eye for eye, tooth for tooth, what should happen to us when we sin and bring death into the world that the God of life created? Right. So, so this covenant, he, he says, I'm not going to do that. 
how will you remember that? Well, you're going to look up in the sky and you're going to see that I have taken my bow, Mm. this weapon of war, and I've hung it up. Mm. I've laid it down. I'm not bringing those waters upon you regardless of whether you deserve it or not because I've chosen you. Um, So, you know, look, our sin brings about that kind of flood every day. all the time. And without this promise, that, that would happen to us. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but it's not going to happen to us only because he's decided that it's not going to. Only because of grace. And that grace is shown in the sign of a covenant, which when you look up in the sky and you see a beautiful rainbow, you see that that is the war bow of God mm-hmm. that can bring judgment upon whatever he wants to bring judgment upon. And he's hung it up. He's put it down. Mm-hmm. Even if we deserve to be on the other end of that judgment. Absolutely. Yeah. So the the spirit and the symbol aspect of what we're talking about, you know, sometimes people look at ancient, you know, we've talked about this a lot, but you think about ancient people's conception of the world and we think that it's like silly and archaic. And Mm -hmm. we honestly kind of think that the ancient people were stupid Mm -hmm. because we might be able to go back to them and we would explain to them what a rainbow really is. You know, a rainbow is is not, you know, God's covenant sign to us. A rainbow is some kind of optical phenomenon that's caused by reflection and refraction and the dispersion of light in water that looks up and there's a spectrum of colors in the sky. And even if you went back and you explained that to an ancient person, they would be like, Sure. Okay. Yeah. What does that have to do with anything? Right. It also represents and more deeply represents the promise that God has made with us. Absolutely. That it comes from rain. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So like when when we talked about this before, you look at a star and in the Bible, they think that that star is embodied by uh, a spirit. Yeah, the heavenly beings. And it's like, well, we would just go back and we would describe that 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 star is actually a, a giant ball of gas and nuclear fusion. And we could set these people straight and they, they would be like, okay, yeah. so what? A, the spirit can still inhabit that thing mm-hmm. and be represented in that thing, yeah. right? They didn't think that the the idols that they carved out of wood, they didn't think that was the God that they were worshiping. They yeah. thought the God that they were worshiping was inhabiting that. So yeah. if you went back and you're like, hey, you know, that thing's actually just wood. Be like, yeah, we know. Like, yeah, we I made carved it. it. <laughs> yeah. We know that. Yeah. But that's not what we're saying it means. Mm -hmm. And so the same is true of of something like a rainbow. A rainbow represents the grace of God because we do deserve that judgment of the flood that we've seen, but God said he's not going to do that. And so he's laid his weapon down Mm. and he's hung it up in the sky. And that's what we should think of when we think, when we see rainbows. So cool. Very cool. This is the original covenant. Yeah. Right. This is even before the Abrahamic covenant that sets the stage for redemption. It's before the Mosaic covenant that establishes the people of God. It's before the Davidic covenant that promises the Messiah. And it's before the new covenant that establishes the church. This is the covenant of Noah, the Noahic Mm -hmm. covenant. And it represents the grace of God and the fact that you look around you and you wonder, why is there all this sin in the world? It's because God's hung up his bow. Yeah. And he's going to allow us to exist even though we're compromised Mm -hmm. and even though we might deserve the flood Mm -hmm. or just simply, even though we might bring the flood about ourselves. Yeah. And so I I think that this, it's my favorite covenant to explain 
because I think that it's so beautiful and I think it explains so much about the questions of why is there evil in the world? Mm -hmm. Why do these kinds of things happen? Why doesn't God just snap his fingers and make everything different? It's because in order for him to do that, you would have to go. Yeah. Mm. And he's laid his weapon down. Mm. That's the rainbow. It's beautiful. So then Genesis 9, uh, 8 through 23 18 through 23. 18 through 23. This is kind of a weird this is kind of a weird part of the story. Yeah, this is where we stop reading sometimes. We're like, yeah, because we're like, what, what's going on? All here? right, I'll skip to the New Testament. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So go, go go ahead and read it. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the whole earth. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside of his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked backward and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father naked. Weird. Seems weird, right? Yeah. Yeah, so the sons of Noah are mentioned, and we're going to come back to them, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Uh, but but Noah, who it says is a man of the soil, plants a vineyard, and it says that he gets drunk. Yeah, interesting. And so usually we interpret this as sin, mm-hmm. right? Because you know, getting drunk on wine, yeah, is never really uh, good. Yeah, 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 and it's it's never it's never prescripted by God. Yeah, right. Uh, but but I kind of want to look at this from a different angle, Noah. Uh, his name itself means comfort or rest. Mm. And his father, whose name is Lamech, not the same Lamech that we've been talking about okay. as evil, different Lamech. Uh, his, his father prophesies over Noah. And he says, I'm going to call you Noah because this one now, this one, this child will comfort us or give us rest, comfort us in or give us rest from, depending on how you translate it, our labors and the toil of our hands from the ground, which Yahweh cursed. Mm-hmm. And we read that right. several chapters ago. Yes, yeah, so Genesis 5, 29. It's just a long genealogy, but then Noah, there's a prophecy attached mm-hmm. to him. And it's that this one will give us comfort or give us rest from the toil of the ground that God has cursed. Mm. So this is the beginnings of new creation. And after the original sin in the original creation, the ground was cursed. Mm. It's actually, you know, besides the serpent, that's the first thing that he tells the man, yeah. tells Adam that the ground is cursed because of you. It's going to produce thorns and thistles. And then when Cain kills his brother, Abel, the, then Cain is cursed from the ground. Yeah. It becomes almost impossible for yeah. him to work the ground. Yeah. And then if you remember in the flood, you saw the ground open up. Yeah. And the, and the waters come out of the ground. They come from the sky, but they also come out of the ground. And so the ground that is cursed and that ground that has cursed Cain, the, the, the judgment of God comes up from that ground mm-hmm. and destroys life. Mm-hmm. And so there's this, there's this fracture, right? Right now, you know, up until this point, the ground and man, it's, they're not good together. They're not on good terms. They're not on good terms. No. There's, there's a curse between them. And so here, after the promise from God, Noah, whose name means comfort, whose father said that he was going to bring them comfort from the ground that God cursed, Noah plants a vineyard and it produces. Yeah. Why? 
which is the beginning of new creation. Mm. And so in, in some way, to some degree, the relationship between man and creation, man and the ground is restored. Starts to get restored. Not fully mm. because there's still going to be thorns and thistles and there's still going to be the, the, the sweat of our brow that tries to bring that out of the ground. But there's the, the inklings of comfort and new creation that are coming from Noah just as his father Lamech prophesied when he was born. Mm. Then he drinks the wine and he drinks the wine because his labor has been completed. So you think about the Sabbath, right? God creates for six days and then he rests on the Sabbath. And that, that, that Sabbath rest is something that God experiences but according to the story, most biblical scholars think that the fall happened on the Sabbath day. Huh. So God yeah. was at rest and the humans were in the garden. And, you know, that, that's when the whole thing with the, with the serpent happens. And so when creation starts over and after his labor of building the ark and persevering faithfully through this historical judgment, he plants a vineyard and he drinks wine. Mm-hmm. He rests. Yeah. He sits down with a glass of wine and he relaxes. Right. Because his know, work is done. His work is done. Yeah. And so he's Sabbathing. Yeah. And this is a rhythm that that we know in, in our world today, right? To, to be at home and to sit with a, a glass of wine at the end of a day or the end of a week mm-hmm. is a rhythm that we experience. Yeah. You know, I uh, there are people, and I used to be in a different world with different kinds of people, but there's, you know, people will have like a beer at lunch. Mm. And I, w- I could never, I can never do something like that. Not because the effects of beer, but because even to me, that drink symbolizes the end of work. Yeah, it does. Like you, you're not having a drink to get more work done. Right. Yeah. And, and there's something ritualistic about it. Sure. So to like go out to lunch and have a beer, to me, I'm like, well, work is over. I'm going to go home. I'm going back to the yeah. office and <laughs> starting back up for the next right. six hours of the day. And that's because there is this kind of rhythm of rest and wine and, and, and how all of that comes about mm. uh, and, and what it symbolizes. And so Adam was given dominion over the soil, but he gave that up. Yeah. He, he you know, in, in a very real way, he forsook that position and the Sabbath rest that was supposed to be enjoyed was he didn't enjoy it. He didn't have it. Mm-hmm. And that is here seems to be given back to Noah in new creation, mastery over the soil uh, and, and the rest that comes along with completed work. Mm. And so Noah goes back into his tent and he relaxes with a glass of wine and he uncovers himself and he falls asleep in his tent. Mm-hmm. Then there's this business with Ham coming into the tent so interesting. And uncovering his nakedness or seeing his, his uncovered state. And there's an interpretation of this that you might hear that has something to do with some kind of sexual sin. Hmm. And one thing that I, you know, since this is all to some degree interpretation, we're trying to understand, um, I always want to reiterate that, that maybe that's true. You know, that kind of perversion is in us mm-hmm. and we do stuff like that. So I never want to say like, that's definitely not what's happening yeah, here. Sure. But I don't think that's what makes the most sense. And, and quite frankly, the text does not say that something sexual happens. Yeah. It, it says that Ham enters the tent and sees his father naked and because his garment has been removed and mm-hmm. he's resting in his tent. 
And so throughout the Bible, what, what we'll see is that garments are used to signify authority and positions and vocation. The clothes that we wear typically have some kind of symbolic or ceremonial meaning to mm-hmm. them, right? They, they signify something about you. We even, we even understand this today. People who wear suits are in specific kinds of business. Yeah, that's a good point. In a lot of churches, the, the, um, the pastors or the priests, um, they wear certain garments. Yeah, sure. You know, um, nuns and monks wear certain garments. Priests in the Catholic Church and the Anglican Church, they wear certain vestments. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in you see this in places like Genesis 35 and Exodus 19, that these garments, which is the word simla, they, they signify something ceremonial and symbolic. The priests wear certain garments to signify their office. The kings wear certain garments to signify their office. That weird scene where David is dancing. Yeah. And his he, he's dancing in linen and people can like see things that they don't think they should be able to see. The reason that's scandalous is because he's a king. Yeah. He's not supposed to be doing that. He's not supposed to be wearing that. Yeah, it indicates a, his vocation. Exactly. As a king, he has a certain garment he's supposed to be wearing in a certain way he's supposed to conduct himself in that garment. The same is true of priests. Um, and so Noah is kind of the the Adam of new creation. Yeah, he's another another Adam. He has a kingly royal role. Yeah, he's been given this vocation. A royal office. And mm-hmm. so in the privacy of his tent, when he Sabbaths after his work is completed, he unclothes himself. And now the sons are alone in the vineyard. And like we said before, this is parallel to the end of Genesis 2, when God, who is the king, rests on the Sabbath, and the humans are in the garden by themselves. Mm. So now Noah, who has kind of been established by God as king in this new creative order. Yeah, absolutely. He Sabbaths and he rests in his tent and his sons are alone in the garden. And so what are they going to do? Mm. Well, in Genesis 3, those who are left alone in the garden, they take what is not theirs. Mm. They take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They take what belongs to God, the king, for themselves. That's the rebellion. That is what that, that signifies. And they take that office that belongs to God and they try to take it for themselves. And so I think what is going on here is exactly the same thing. Ham walks into Noah's tent. He sees his father's nakedness. He sees him without the garment that indicates his royal and authoritative office. And it seems like he comes out and tells his brothers. Yeah, he comes and tells other people about it. And I don't think he just tells them that that he's naked. Mm. I think what he what he is probably telling them is that his authority is up for grabs because his garment is off. Mm. The garment that indicates who he is is off of him. Mm. And so Ham comes out, and you know we're reading into the text a little bit, but I think it makes sense uh, and is indicated by what happens next. He tells his brothers, maybe we should take the garment. Mm. Interesting. Maybe we should become king. Well, it sounds exactly like the garden. Yeah, for sure. In the beginning. Sounds like Genesis 3. Maybe I should have this fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Yeah. And just like wisdom, you know, the office certainly at some point through Noah would have been passed down, right? Right. That wisdom is, you know, given to us through God, you know, in its right time. Yeah. And that, you know, authority would be passed down from Noah to his sons in the right time. Exactly. Hmm. So the, the tree 
of the knowledge of good and evil was going to become available yeah. to Adam and Eve and, and their progeny. But they didn't want that. They wanted to take it. Yeah. So Ham and Shem and Japheth are going to become the new kings because they're in line. Yeah. But instead, Ham says, maybe we should just take it. Mm. It's exactly the same thing. He, he, and, and, and so how do the brothers respond? Yeah, they don't. They don't take it, right? The, the serpent tempts Adam and Eve and they take it. Mm. Ham tempts the, bro- the other brothers and he, he takes it and he wants it and he wants it for himself. And, and his brothers say no and they turn their faces away and they cover their father with his garment that indicates his authority. Yeah. And so they do not participate in the rebellion. Mm. Ham does. Yeah. The brothers don't. And so the replay of the garden is happening, but in a different way. Mm-hmm. And you see a mixed reaction to it, right? So, so then let's read 9, 24 through 29. So, so through the end of Genesis 9, mm-hmm. and, and we can just kind of wrap up, you know, why we think this is the case. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of the slaves will he be to his brothers. He also said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend Japheth's territory, and may Japheth live in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. Noah lived a total of 950 years, and then he died. So Ham, who's going to be the father of the Canaanites, we're going to see here, he's cursed. Mm. And he's cursed for the same reason that curse comes upon the humans in the garden because he's participated in the rebe- in the rebellion. Mm-hmm. He's tried to take what belongs to who, you know, in the garden it was to God. Here it's to God's appointed one, appointed yeah. one Noah. And uh, so so we're going to see this play out in the 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 people who come from these sons. But you see how this makes sense like the the curse and the blessing it doesn't make sense if it's just about seeing Noah naked. Yeah. Right? Something else is happening here that you have to understand, I guess what you would call like um, um, garment theology. Yeah. Right? Like well, symbolism. The, the theology yeah. of symbols and and you see that Noah has taken off what indicates his kingship and then Ham goes in and he sees he doesn't have it on. He wants to take it for himself and his brothers say no. And so the curse comes upon Ham, and therefore the future Canaanites, but it does not come upon Shem, who are going to become the people of God, and it does not become upon uh, upon Japheth because they don't participate mm. in the rebellion, right? Mm. So this is a, a good example of something that you you can't expect people today to read the story and get all of that. Yeah, for sure. Right? There, there's some very deep contextual, historical, biblical stuff going on there that is hard for us today to see and to just intuit. Mm. In fact, I would probably argue that's impossible, mm. right? But um, once you see it, it's hard to unsee it. Yeah, absolutely. Right? This is the garden. I mean, a vineyard is a garden. Mm-hmm. This is a garden rebellion that mm-hmm. Ham has participated in. That's the exact same replay and cycle of what you saw in Genesis 3, but his brothers don't. And so that has implications on the story going forward and what's happening in the future. Mm. So this is 
Genesis 9, it's a good example of all the story and all the symbol and all the spirit aspect of the hermeneutic Mm -hmm. and how all of that's at play. And when we take that lens and we see these stories through it, we can actually start to understand some of these very strange stories. What is it about Ham seeing his father's nakedness that brings these crazy consequences? Mm. Well, it has to be something further, right? It has to to do with his garment and it has to do with his office and it has to do with his authority and it has to do with rebellion and it has to do with Genesis three and all all of that. Right. Mm. And so new creation has begun and what has immediately happened? Rebellion. Rebellion. To rebel against Noah, God's appointed is to rebel against God. Mm. And so good thing God made that promise to them. Yeah. Because here's sin immediately. Immediately. Mm. It happens right away in the story. And so this is a good example of how things are not going to be expedient. Things are not going to be easy. Things are going to be messy. And a lot of the things that are going to happen from here forward are not God's direct will Mm. in the sense that, you know, now there's going to be strife between Canaan and the Israelites, and there's going to be strife between the neighbors, and there's going to be strife between all these nations. Does God want that? No. But he's promised that he will work through it to bring redemption to the Mm. world, and that's what we're going to see throughout the rest of the story, and that's all connected to the Noahic covenant. Mm. And good thing he made that promise because I think maybe a flood would happen again right now. Yeah, we're going <laughs> right? to need it. Yeah. Right? <laughs> right? So, um, so yeah, so, so interesting, interesting symbolism here, interesting biblical theology here. I think this is uh, a really important thing for us to understand as we move forward. And it, it's one of those keys that when you see this story like this, this partic- you know, these three chapters like this, the rest of everything starts to fall into place a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. We're we're past Genesis 1 through 3 in the sense that we've read it and we're reading on in the story, but we're never past it. We'll reference it again and again. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll see this again and again because uh, one of the scary things is that um, you think about the gravest sins that we, that we commit. Mm. And so much of the sin that happens that, that creates chaos in our lives and the lives of others, um, you, you can try to boil it down to the actions themselves, violence, murder, gossip, um, um, uh, oppression. But so much of it has to do with seeing God's world and not trusting God mm. and taking what we mm-hmm. want, right? Why does a dictator who very well may start out with idealistic uh, ambitions. Sure. Yeah. End up murdering, you know, 1.5 million people or whatever. Well, because you get into it and you get into whatever it is that you want to do and you just start taking what you want. There's the temptation to take. Yeah. Always. So the, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Mm -hmm. they take it. The office of Noah, they take it. Uh, you're going to see David sees Bathsheba. Yeah. What's he do? He takes it. Mm-hmm. He wants it, so he takes it. Um, you're going to see this with Saul before David, where he doesn't trust God to do what God says he's going to do in these battles, and so mm-hmm. he tries to take it for himself. He yeah. tries to take what he wants. He doesn't trust that God has appointed him. And so when David starts to, to have success, he does not repent and say, well, I trust God. He tries to kill David and take back what he thinks is his. And so, you know, you look at your life and so much— 
of the sin patterns of our life has mm. to do with this thing. You know, we would look at something like murder and we would say, well, that's not normal. But seeing something in your work environment that isn't working out the way that you want. And so trying to take what you want, that's very normal. Mm -hmm. But that is the heart of the sin that we see here. And so it's in all of us and it's in our life. And that is why repentance and confession and prayer and, and reflection is so important because it's very natural human instinct to do exactly this. I want this thing. Here it is. Yeah. I should take it. Mm. And uh, that's exactly the opposite of what God has outlined for us, right? Mm. So even even going back to uh, sacrifice, right? We want the crops to grow. Maybe I should start worshiping these other gods that claim that they're going to bring the crops for us. Yeah. What are you doing in that? You're trying to take what you want. Yeah, it's saying, I don't trust God to provide. Let me take these other precautionary measures. Yeah, James in the book of James, he has some things that are confusing to us because he's like, he's like, well, why are you doing all these evil things? Well, because you're trying to take what you want. You want things, you're trying to take it. You're not bringing it to God. Mm-hmm. And we look at that and we're kind of like, oh, okay, yeah, let me pray about it. Yeah. I want this thing, so let me just pray about it. And we almost like make fun of that. But what he's saying is he's, he's just using this theology right here. Mm. He's saying you are destroying your relationships with your tongue, with, with your words, because there's something that you want and you want to take it. Mm-hmm. And as you know, a leader in the Christian church, James is saying that's destroying your community. Yeah. And we're like, that seems a little extreme. But then you read the story, it's like, it's not extreme. Mm-hmm. That is the heart of sin. It's exactly what we do to each other. sin. And so we'll see this over and over. And so this is the foundation of all of that right here. And yet God has promised that even though we're like that, he's going to move through us Mm. and he's going to bring redemption and and his grace will reign. And we will look up in the sky and we will see his war bow hung up and we can know and trust that his promises will come to fruition, that he will remember his covenants. Mm. So that's Genesis 9. Yeah. Jackie, we're almost in double digits. It's crazy, guys. We're moving so fast. I mean, Let us know if you should, guys uh, want us to slow down or anything. We should have a celebration <laughs> pod next time when we get through Genesis 10, <laughs> which I think is basically a genealogy. Yeah. So we've got, we got another genealogy chapter, which I know everybody loves. Everyone buckle up. Uh, Genesis 10 is the table of nations, which mm-hmm. does set the scene for a lot of what we're going to see throughout the rest of the Bible. So, so it is important. So, so we'll get into that next time. And then we have the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. And then starting in Genesis 12 is the call of Abraham and the beginnings of the people of God through whom salvation comes. So mm-hmm. we're getting we're getting into the Exciting action. Exciting stuff. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, anything else, Jackie? That's it. All right. Well, thank you guys for joining. And we will see you guys next week on Story Symbol Spirit. Mm-hmm.